Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Nerdcast is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Engaging video lectures presented by top university professors on a variety of topics. It's the perfect way to learn for the pure pleasure of it. With The Great Courses Plus, you'll have unlimited access to a wealth of knowledge. Watch lectures from any device on your own schedule. Sign up today and get your first month free. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash nerdcast. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, August 4th, and I'm Charlie Matessian, guest hosting the Nerdcast. 400. That's the amount in millions in cash that was secretly arranged by the Obama administration for transfer to Iran on the same day Iran released four American prisoners and implemented the nuclear deal. 64. That's the amount in millions of Donald Trump's haul in July that his campaign says came through the campaign's digital and direct mail operations along with the RNC. 47. That's the percentage of the Arizona Republican primary vote that Senator John McCain has gotten in two polls released earlier this year. So in other words, the 2008 Republican presidential nominee has got a fight on his hands this year. With me here today at Political World Headquarters is Hadass Gold. Hi, everybody. Ken Vogel. Hey. Scott Bland. Hello. And Eli Stokels. Hey, Charlie. We'll start today with a listener question. This comes from Arlen, who asks, so there is a clear possibility of a total implosion, explosion of Donald Trump's candidacy. I'm just curious if the panel would weigh in on what might actually happen if Trump drops out of the race. It's a pretty good question because that seems to be what everyone is talking about in the Republican race these days. Uh, Eli, why don't you take a stab at this? What do you think? Did Arlen say apparent? implosion or seems to be an implosion because I'm pretty sure what we're looking at is an implosion, right? I mean, there's no question as to how terrible the last week has been for Donald Trump. And so, yeah, it makes sense that a lot of Republicans looking at this, Stuart Stevens on Twitter yesterday said, uh, it's like the Republicans jumped out of a plane without a chute and halfway to the ground realized that they have a problem. Uh, And that's sort of where things are right now. It's no wonder everybody's sitting here saying like, Can we get a new nominee? Can we flip-flop and get Trump out of the way and move Pence to the top of the ticket? And this is sort of unprecedented. And yes, you know, the race is sort of getting to the point of being cooked, right? What does Trump have left to change at the debates? Does anybody think Trump is really going to, like, you know, clean Hillary's clock in the debate? So you can understand why a lot of people are wanting to say, like, right now, is it too late to switch? And I think the reason that's so far-fetched uh, is because, you know, he is he's raising money like we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, but there just 
isn't a real way to do this and get a new candidate on the ballot in all of these states. Um, and I think it's just like this is where they are now. They just did a whole convention selling this guy. You can't in mid-August conceivably come out and say, oh, never mind. We're just going to like get our guy who's been campaigning for over a year to just step aside. Okay, so you yeah, seem a little dubious about it. I mean, it. it's, it's, not, not, it's just not going to happen. I mean, it's understandable why everybody's talking about it. But, but it would also just, it also require Trump himself to step aside. They can't force him. It has to be voluntary on his part, right? They can't get him to just like sort of adhere to a consistent message. They can't get him to just sort of endorse right. well, it's not Paul Ryan. He's I mean, not going to quit. It's, yeah. it's just like everything that we that we see and that we know about him from talking to people who have known him for years and years. It goes against sort of everything that he's about. In fact, part of the reason that he's in this situation in the first place is because he cannot back down. He cannot turn the other cheek. Can you imagine if someone came to him and said, hey, we need you to step aside? It would only provoke him and get him to dig in further. Now, let me also push back on the implosion narrative. I mean, it's it's been a bad week. Let's, let's, not, uh, uh, let, let's not try to sugarcoat that in any way. But in the grand scheme of things, I mean, you see these sort of, you see these weeks, you see the, these like runs of sort of bad press or bad moves or condemnation in other campaigns. I think what's different here is that the uh, attention and the media cycle is so intense around Trump because he has created that phenomenon, which has served him well, uh, that certainly served him well in the primaries and serving him less well in the general election. Okay, I think, I think that I'm probably then in the minority in this room. <laughs> and uh, because uh, I think Hadass is with you guys, Scott's with you guys. I wish Kristen Roberts were here because I think Kristen would be on my side on this. I, I, she would like my socks, that's for sure. I'm not Hadass really, tweeted a photo of. They're I'm not, American flag socks. I'm not nearly as skeptical as, as you guys. I mean, if there was ever going to be a nominee who pulled out this late, wouldn't it be Donald Trump? I, I think it would be. And if because here's the thing: if his trajectory doesn't change very quickly and dramatically, it's over. This race is going to be cooked. I mean, it is August. We're under a hundred days, hundred days to the election. The guy has already said that the race is going to be rigged for Hillary Clinton. And here's how he does it: all he has to do is figure out a way to save face. And here's how he does it. I think you assert that the race is already rigged. There's nothing you can do about it. And then you also then throw Reince Priebus under the bus and claim that both major parties have rigged the election and are conspiring to keep you from winning. And then you walk away, take your ball and you walk away. Okay, Hadass, $400 million, the secret plane load of shrink-wrapped cash. Now, that is a pretty powerful story that would dominate cable television dominate all of our time a gazillion stories would be written about that under normal circumstances right but you know what it's getting a little bit drowned out by donald trump a little bit it's i feel like i've barely seen it anywhere i mean it's it's been covered but that that story reads like a spy thriller or like something that's in some crazy movie well and, you don't shrink wrap your cash well, i mean some only on thursdays but <laughs> uh it's you know, it, it's a huge story. It really kind of flies in the face um, for, you know, defenders of the Iran deal for some people. And uh, it's something that would be just a perfect ammunition for the Republicans and for Donald Trump, who has said that the Iran deal was a horrible deal and that, you know, we got the short end of the stick and et cetera, et cetera, except that we are barely hearing about it and we're barely hearing about any of these, you know, negative stories for Democrats or for Hillary Clinton. There have been a couple this week. And it's just because the Donald Trump news is just absolutely dominating everything because it's just a 
litany. I mean, people have been listing out. I saw, I think, um, the NBC first first read listed out. I think it was like 20 things that Trump has done just in the last like four days that are that have become huge stories. Everything. I mean. The Gold Star family is now starting to like recede into the background, which is crazy to think that that just happened in the last four days. On top of all of these things that are happening, the, you know, Paul Ryan, John McCain, non-endorsements, his, you know, staff being, staff shakeup in Donald Trump land. I mean, I can't even think of all the things that are going on. But, I mean, Hillary Clinton gave an incorrect answer on Sunday to Fox News about her emails. The New York Times public editor wrote a, like a, a scathing a column to the New York Times saying, you guys didn't cover this. She did not give a truthful answer. And the New York Times just didn't cover it. What's amazing about this, Hadass, I think, is that think about all the other things that got buried. It's not just that jaw-dropping Hillary Clinton answer on email. It's also the Russian DNC hack. It is the DNC house cleaning. It's all these other things have been buried under uh, the, the the news coming out of the Trump camp. And that's what I think is so damaging. I mean, Ken, do you, are, do you buy this argument? This has been a, a terrible week in part, not just because of the news coming out of the Trump camp, but because it buried all the negative Democratic news. Yeah, I would say that Clinton has not like handled these things well individually. And so her like responses would be, uh, would sort of fuel this story, in, in particular the 400 million uh, in in cash payment to uh, to Iran, uh, that would have been you know that 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 had some legs. I think it still potentially has some legs. But like Hillary said, this is old news. That's what, that's how she responded. It's in fact it is true that it is mostly old news. That it was uh, something that was revealed at the time when the Iran deal was signed as uh, being sort of part of the negotiations, but not directly related to the prisoner swap. Uh, in fact, it was uh, for for uh, to to, to uh, settle a claim that Iran had made about payments that it had uh, rendered to the U.S. for an arms deal that never went through decades ago. That said, that's a really bad answer, and people would seize on that, and it would have the and would have legs were it not for the fact that Trump is stepping all over these potentially very good stories for him and very bad stories for Clinton. It's interesting. I was talking to a guy who uh, who uh, works closely with the campaign, who who kind of attributes all that. I think he's giving a little bit too much credit to the Clintons, but he's kind of attributing all of this to to the Clinton campaign, saying the Clinton campaign knows how to push Trump's button, so they got him going on this gold star family thing in order to uh, distract attention from some of these bad stories of Clinton. That's uh, Certainly, that is what happened. I don't know that they teed it up like that. I think that's giving too much credit to the Clintons and not enough blame to Donald Trump. Whatever the reason, he's he's uh, stepping on some potentially but very bad stories for Hillary. I think that they figured out maybe how to, like you said, push his buttons. I was you know, reading people saying that they've seen ads run during like Fox News shows that are, um, you know, other Republicans criticizing Donald Trump. I think Hillary Clinton or one of her super PACs has an ad about that. And then he starts attacking Republicans, you know, who have attacked him. And it's not, I don't think it's happening in a vacuum. You know, it, it, Donald Trump is not just deciding to attack these people. I think he's seeing something and seeing that he needs to respond. We saw um, in the Washington Post interview that he is constantly watching TV and couldn't even focus on Phil Rucker for more than five minutes before he was going to comment on something that happened on TV. So, and, and there's, I've also heard that there's um, kind of a theory amongst some people that all of these, uh, we, we saw some stories that the campaign people feel like Paul Manning 
metaphor is mailing it in or that there was like internal discord, that it was coming out in the media because that was the only way to reach Donald Trump, that he wouldn't respond to anything like that if he went to him internally and said, hey, we have an issue. But when he sees it reported in the news, then he responds to it. So if you want to get Donald Trump to respond to something, maybe the answer is take an ad out during Megyn Kelly or Bill O'Reilly. Well, I saw John Harwood last night. He's the one who tweeted that the staff is suicidal from a Manafort ally. And he believes very much what you just said, that that Manafort friends and Manafort perhaps himself were using him as a conduit to reach Trump because he puts it out on Twitter, gets thousands of retweets, and Trump's going to see that because that's what he pays attention to. I know there's a lot of uh, anger inside Trump Tower at the media, right? They feel like it is unfair, the focus on all of these Trump stories and the sort of overlooking or the less less amount of airtime, media oxygen given to a lot of these Clinton stories that would be negative for her. But they also know that they've got to fix their candidate, right? It's not fixing the media. They talk about the media as unfair, right? So that's maybe baked into the cake. It's fix your freaking candidate. When you when Donald Trump goes out at his two rallies yesterday and he begins by saying, all right, I got to start with the $400 million that the U.S. gave to Iran and we're so stupid and, and he goes into this rift, right? If he would continue that through and articulate that consistently, then maybe that would be the story that is breaking through. But because of the lack of discipline, he does that at the beginning almost because it's sort of pro forma. I've got to do this. My people told me I have to do this. And then you know, before long, he's into relitigating what he meant when he said Megyn Kelly had blood coming out of or wherever. He's he's relitigating why you know defending himself against the charges that he was mocking the New York Times reporter with a disability. He's going those back were through all in Hillary all Clinton things. ads because well, I mean, what did she say in her speech? This guy can be baited with a tweet. They're baiting him. Of course they are. They know that he's susceptible to it, and his campaign knows that he's susceptible to it. And let's be honest, this entire news cycle since Trump got into the race, pretty much has been dominated by Donald Trump. And so if his campaign wants the press to focus on Hillary Clinton and her problems, Donald Trump has to focus on Hillary Clinton and her problems. And Donald Trump has shown that he can't really focus on much of anything I was, for very long. I was looking at Donald Trump's Facebook the other day, looking at all the comments, and all of his like rabid supporters are begging him to just focus on Hillary Clinton. They're like, we love you, you can change this country, but please like, stop kicking babies out of your rallies and start just focusing on Hillary Clinton. There's please so much Please stop material. saying that Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in like a swing state is a hellhole. Please stop. I mean, that's like not how you do As it. As someone who lived in Harrisburg for two and a half years covering the Pennsylvania State Legislature for the Wilkes-Barre Times Leader, shout out, I can say that it is not a hellhole. I actually enjoyed Harrisburg quite a bit. But uh, on, on, your, on your broader point about... Uh, about his inability to focus. I mean, they are convinced that it's not just the media. Like the people in, in uh, Trump Tower are convinced it's not just the media, but rather that it's the Clinton campaign who was like brilliantly outmaneuvering them. I, for instance, I'm quite sure that they planted that baby there. They knew that baby was going to scream. <laughs> Come on, man. Clearly. clearly just clearly, baiting him. If, clearly. if you could be baited by a tweet and a screaming baby, then clearly you can't be trusted with the nuclear codes. Well, Eli, let me ask you a question about that campaign. Uh, so you spent a lot of time in Trump Tower talking to these folks. Can you explain a little bit about, like, what is that office environment like? It just seems so cutthroat, so dysfunctional. I mean, what is it like there? Are, is everyone suspicious of each other in the Clinton campaign? What is, what is the vibe you get from those folks? Well, I think that's how it was when, when there was the Lewandowski-Manafort dynamic and, and there were sort of everybody's heads were on swivels. Um, right now, I mean, I talked to somebody yesterday and they said, you know, it's right now it's less than that and it's more just sort of sad and resignation. And there's a lot of, you know, yeah, we're working really hard, 
but people are sort of doing their own thing, swimming in their own lane. And I think there is maybe a shared recognition that like this is, you know, we can do all these things. We can send out all this rapid response. We can put opposition research on the Internet. We can, um, you know, I don't know, arrange direct mail, do whatever the campaign to write. Like they can make decisions. They can spend money. They can figure these things out. And yet the campaign is going to be driven by whatever comes out of Donald Trump's mouth. And I think there's a frustration uh, that goes deeper and, you know, further down in the campaign beyond just sort of the inner circle. People sitting there saying, you know, like, yeah, this is a job. I'm working on a presidential campaign. But this is tough because we've just got a principal here who just does his own thing. And I think that's right. I think that is right. That That, that is sort of like a... Uh, you know, disappointment, resignation within the campaign. But I also do think there's still quite a bit of a culture of paranoia, and it's just shifted. I mean, for some, in some ways, it's still very much directed at Lewandowski, who the Manafort people believe is still working actively to sabotage him, including by talking to Trump sometimes multiple times a day on the phone, putting him in touch with people like, you know, principals, at, you know, top surrogates who— uh, Lewandowski knows will be critical of the direction that Manafort is charting. And then additionally, they have gotten rid of other people, as we've reported uh, subsequently, who are not necessarily Corey people, but they're people who were sort of brought in by the old regime, including a lot of the Carson folks, as Alex Eisenstadt and I reported. At least two of them, possibly many more, were pushed out in this past week. There's a suspicion uh, among the folks who are still there that those people are now planting negative stories, not because of any allegiance to Corey, but because they got pushed out. And so I think that the culture of paranoia remains and is probably in some ways comes from the top down. That's part of the culture. Now we have to take a break for a message from our sponsor. Nerdcast listeners are continual learners. That's why you need to sign up for The Great Courses Plus. With a wide variety of subjects, including history, politics, business, and more, The Great Courses Plus Video Learning Service is now offering listeners to this podcast an opportunity to stream over 7,000 fascinating video lectures presented by award-winning professors and experts in their fields. You'll get a free month of unlimited access to watch courses like Fundamentals of Photography and many more when you sign up for The Great Courses Plus. Start your free month now by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash nerdcast. That's one month free when you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash nerdcast. $64 million. That's the amount of money that Donald Trump hauled in in July that his campaign says came through digital and direct mail operations with the RNC. Now, if that's small donations, that's better than Hillary Clinton has done. And it actually kind of puts them in Bernie Sanders territory, doesn't it, Ken? Yeah, I mean, $64 million is huge. We don't know because the, this is just a voluntary release of top-line figures from the campaign. We don't know actually how much of that is small donations. That is those under uh, $200, $200 or under but it stands to reason that if you're raising money that way, if you're raising it through online outreach and through direct mail, that's the type of money that tends to be small donations. And that's, that's a big deal. It's a big deal for a number of reasons. First of all, that 
unlike some of these uh, big checks that the Trump campaign has raised through its joint fundraising committee when they go for that maximum $449,000 check, a lot of that money is by definition off limits to the campaign. It's going to the RNC in these big $100,000 chunks to these three new funds that were created in the 2014 Cromnibus bill. When you're raising smaller dollars, the first chunk of change, the first $5,400 or now $2,700 is going to the Trump campaign. So it means that he is raising that money and he can probably use, a, if it's small donations, he can probably use a lot of it. It also means that he has tapped into something that I think was long available to him that Republican finance operatives were frustrated that he wasn't tapping into. And that is that small donors, they do really like themselves some Donald Trump and they were willing to support him and that he was sort of foreclosing that avenue by talking a big game about self-funding, even as he was accepting donations on the side. So that suggests that the Trump campaign has blown a an incredible opportunity, Eli. I mean, as I listen to Ken explain that, it tells me that here was a guy who had the kind of grassroots clout that Bernie Sanders had. And, you know, when I say Bernie Sanders territory with online donations, I mean, I think one of the huge stories of this election cycle going forward will be what Bernie Sanders was able to accomplish in terms of generating enthusiasm uh, at the net roots level and generating online money. And so what Ken's saying suggests that this was a huge opportunity that was missed by Donald Trump. Had he started earlier, it might have been a different campaign and almost, uh, you know, he would have had a different campaign, but it also would have been a different matchup between Hillary and Donald Trump because of the, the amount of money he would have had. Well, Donald Trump can be, you know, rightly credited for his savvy and his sort of cunning when it comes to gaming this out and understanding media and understanding how to how to win a very difficult primary. Um, but, you know, foresight is not really one of his strong suits. And you know, this would have changed the campaign he ran in the primary because for a long time, what was one of his message points? What was one of the things that people at his rally said they really liked about him? That he wasn't going to be beholden to donors and that he was doing this his own way and he wasn't asking anybody for money. And part of the self-funding line that Trump would use included not begging people for small dollars on the website. And it really gets at the I mean, this isn't just a, a strategic decision. This is an elemental piece of who Trump is as a person. He sees himself, right? The reason he has a hard time going and asking donors for money and like actually working these fundraisers and actually like sucking up to these people with money and making them feel like big up. shots is because he's the big shot. In his mind, he's the only big and shot. And it makes him feel less rich. Damn right. And so when he goes into the room, he doesn't like how, how asking other people for money makes him feel. So is he going to go around and you know, ask small support, blue collar people, people who are out of work, people who he's trying to help, say, hey, I could really use your money? Of course not, because it's just sort of antithetical to his own self-conception. So yes, he missed an opportunity to do this. Yes, this money would have come in handy. Yes, he should have gotten to this earlier. But you can sort of understand when you just step back and think about who Donald Trump is and what sort of you know, persona he was sort of putting forth as a politician for the last 13, 14 months, um, you can understand better why this was something that they just said. But I think on the on the small it. donor side in particular, that that this the reason why this is a missed opportunity is because the way that he's doing it now is not just like hat in hand begging for money. He's he's piggybacking on the storylines, and even more important, he is offering this sort of like window dressing, kind of not super significant, two million dollar match. 
each month where he says, you know, every small donation that comes in up to $2 million, I will match. And he did that. He gave another $2 million to his campaign in July, is now up to $56 million. I had finance operatives saying, if you want to do like a hybrid, self-funded and small donor funded and, you know, donor funded campaign, that's the way to do it. And this was something he should have done from the very beginning. And if he had done that from the very beginning, he would not only have a lot more money, potentially a lot more infrastructure. I mean, it's unclear whether he would be able to spend the money wisely, but he would also have the small dollar donor base that he could continue to piggyback on throughout the rest of the campaign. I don't know, but at the end, I feel like we all go into all these numbers and small donors and how important, but we've seen that none of the traditional rules apply to Donald Trump. I know that we're freaking out that he's having a bad week, but it's only, it's even though it's we have less than 100 days to go, this news cycle, everything changes so quickly. He's proven that he doesn't need you know, donors or even ad time to get him anywhere. Everybody keeps saying how much this matters, but maybe I'm a naive and a novice to elections and campaigns, but I, I mean, shouldn't he be losing by like 40 points if all of what everybody's saying is true? But to, no, I to, mean, the, nobody's ever going to lose in this country by 40 points, right? I know, I mean, but I'm just like... But I'm, this is also him acknowledging that, I mean, I agree 100% with you, but this is this is his, his, his decision to do the complete 180 and start begging for money like every other politician is an acknowledgement by his own campaign that in some ways the traditional metrics do apply and he has to do this or... Maybe it's a sort of a combination of that acknowledgement as well as an acknowledgement that he's not as rich as he is and cannot self-fund the whole <laughs> have, campaign. Have you guys talked to anybody who have been at these fundraisers with Donald Trump? What is he like at these fundraisers? My understanding is that he's pretty brusque and it's the, it's the same way he is at everything. It comes in, says a couple like sentences, some platitudes, shakes some hands, poses for pictures, does the thumbs up and gets the hell out. He does not spend a ton of time schmoozing with these people. And that's the difference between him and other politicians who are you know known for being quote unquote great fundraisers. And, and you remember the story about uh, about uh, Sheldon Adelson pushing Newt for VP. Sheldon Adelson, of course, funded Newt Gingrich's Wobegon 2012 campaign with $20 million in super PAC funds. Uh, the suggestion, there, there was some reporting that suggested that Adelson was kind of dangling like a big chunk of change saying like, hey, if you pick uh, Newt Gingrich as your as your running mate, there could be something in it for you. And apparently that really like put off Trump because it was like suggesting this guy has more money than me, which he indisputably does <laughs> and that he would need this money. So I think you see that same dynamic playing out to, to Hadassah's question at the fundraisers. Here are people who have money, in some cases much more than him, whose money he needs and that dynamic makes Donald Trump extremely uncomfortable. Well, and it's just one last point. The, the the small dollars are of the utmost importance because he can't get the large dollars. I mean, it's you know, it it's it's partly that. It's partly that he won't do the maintenance, but you know, it's also just the politics. I mean, the donor class is not really a lot, is not really Trump's base. And so you see, you know, the Meg Whitman story saying she's going to not just support Hillary Clinton, but contribute to her. I mean, just, you know, today or yesterday, I believe Seth Klarman, billionaire hedge fund manager, Republican, also said, I'm with her. So you have a lot of these people who are typical Republican donors who would be who generally underwrite Republican campaigns and they're helping Clinton. And so Trump doesn't have it. And how much of his own money is he going to spend and you know that it, it, he really does need these small small dollar donors, but I think Hadass is right that to question at least you know what money gets you in this news cycle and th this sort of this type of campaign because I don't know that 
paid media is going to really move the needle much for either of these candidates in the fall. Not as much maybe as it we, you know used to four years ago even. 47%. That's the share of the Arizona Republican primary vote that John McCain has gotten in two polls released earlier this year. Could John McCain really lose, Scott? Uh, the answer is probably not. And the reason uh, these polls that I picked out, I, I picked out particularly because these were done by the pro-McCain super PAC, right? You know, they, they went out, they paid a lot of money, as campaigns do, for, for good data on this. And they surveyed in January and then about six months later. And they found John McCain at 47% each time. The key difference was that uh, in that time, his main primary challenger, Kelly Ward, a former state legislator, uh, fell from 40, so just a seven-point gap, all the way down to 22. And they'd been you know, attacking her for, for a long time. But now the reason this is coming up this week is because you know, we mentioned that, that Washington Post uh, interview that Trump did earlier where he specifically uh, brought up McCain and declined to endorse him, support him in his primary. So this is the, you know, his predecessor as the Republican presidential nominee uh, who has some issues uh, with popularity within the Republican Party in Arizona. You know, he's not as popular as, as he could be among uh, hardline conservatives, more Tea Party type conservatives. Uh, you know, facing a primary challenge, albeit an underfunded one, and Trump is going out of his way to bring him up and then put him down. Uh, I think you know because uh, John McCain last week wrote that letter uh, criticizing uh, Trump for for what he said about about the Khan family. So John McCain, I take it from uh, reading between the lines of your answer, is going to is likely to win his primary. And then how about then the 2012 Republican vice presidential nominee? Paul Ryan. We see uh, there's a lot of publicity surrounding his primary uh, challenge and also uh, Donald Trump declining to endorse him in the same way that he uh, declined to endorse John McCain. Is there any chance Paul Ryan loses? I think there's a bigger chance that McCain loses than than Paul Ryan loses. Everything we've ever seen shows that Ryan is very popular uh, among Republicans of all stripes in Wisconsin, in his district, uh, so on and so forth. You know, his the I, I mean, the thing that's interesting, right, is that his uh, his opponent, his primary opponent, has raised now over a million dollars, mostly you know from out of the district, mostly small small dollar stuff by latching on to this this kind of Trump phenomenon, you know, fueled by by Breitbart and some you know, other other news outlets that are kind of out there, kind of looking to to um, pick fights with Republicans who uh, they see as not sufficiently supportive of Trump. And this is money that didn't used to, and you know, the same is true for Ward to some extent. This is money that didn't used to be available for primary challengers, right? You had someone like John McCain, who's been in the Senate for a very long time, someone like Paul Ryan, who's Speaker of the House, who has his state and district on lockdown. But these candidates are able to gin up enough money over the internet from far away from the district, wherever in these small increments, to run real campaigns and and you know kind of make something of themselves whereas in the past you know no one ever would have known their name Hadas, as our token <laughs> arizonan can you imagine an arizona without john mccain in statewide office it would be incredible but i mean arizona is a changing state in a lot of ways uh and you know john mccain has been around for a very long time i i ultimately think he's going to prevail but uh, Arizona is, is just really fascinating right now, not only in how the demographics are changing in terms of minorities. Um, you have a Democratic mayor of Phoenix, and Phoenix is probably, I think it's the sixth largest city in the nation now. Um, but you still have the, like, the the very active Tea Party conservative. I mean, look at the former governor, Jan Brewer, and um, her support. And so it's, 
I can't imagine uh, an Arizona without John McCain. I, like I said, I do think he will win, but he has a lot of challenges from coming at him from both sides, it seems like. Well, I would just note that uh, Phoenix is smaller than Philadelphia, which is number five, <laughs> but uh, I think that's neither here There's nor there. There's a story circulating on Twitter today about people in Philadelphia making uh, personal swimming pools and dumpsters, by the way. So I, I think we should all check well, that out. Well, in Phoenix, everybody the, has their uh, own real swimming pool. <laughs> Eli. Let me ask you uh, about McCain, but the, the sort of Trump angle. Why on earth would Donald Trump spend so much political capital and so much time and on disrespecting the tw- 2008 presidential nominee and then Paul Ryan, the 2012 vice presidential nominee? He is taking on, I understand he takes on the establishment and that's, that's, that's his thing, but why spend so much time? Is this just about payback to those two? Yeah, I mean, to really answer why does Donald Trump do X and insert anything you want for X. I mean, to really answer that, we would need a whole team of psychologists and probably a lot more time than we have left in this podcast. But yeah, the guy, there's never a score that he will not come back and settle. Um, that's just who Donald Trump is. Um, he does not forgive any slights. Uh, for whatever reason, he's never had a good relationship with McCain. Um, we saw... What he said to McCain last summer, it was really the first, you know, holy shit moment when you saw Donald Trump say something that was like, oh, my God, he can't say that. And then we started to realize that maybe Donald Trump can say certain things when he start when he said McCain's not a hero because I like people who, who don't get captured. Um, you know, so the bad blood between him and McCain has been there for a long time. And I mean, it's just who Donald Trump is. You're going to see that through the end of the campaign. I think the sad thing for John McCain is given the state of politics and what we're seeing in a lot of places, John McCain does not want John McCain, I'm sure, wishes he didn't have to endorse Donald Trump. Right. In Arizona. I mean, Donald, uh, John McCain will lose votes if he's out there crapping on Donald Trump because Trump has some you know, popularity with a certain element of the Republican base, and John McCain is going to need some of those votes. And so he can't do it. But that's sort of, I mean, you know, that's sort of the problem for a lot of Republicans. And I think one thing to watch is as we get past all these primaries, we get into the general election, and we start to see what happens with Donald Trump's poll numbers, if they go the same way they look to be going at this moment in time, where he starts to perhaps become a drag on Republican tickets, then you're going to see far more Republicans, Senate and House candidates, starting to sort of run uh, opposing Trump or run away from Trump as their nominee. I'm glad you mentioned that, Eli. Uh, (laughs) Our colleague Alex Eisenstadt has this story today looking at Congressman Mike Kaufman. Who Who is he? We've brought him up on the podcast before, actually, as a Republican uh, in the Denver suburbs. Uh, It's a district Obama won, a very cosmopolitan district, about 20% Hispanic. And he's out with a new TV ad this week in which uh, he, you know, he's talking about Donald Trump. And he says, honestly, I don't care for him. In fact, you know, we could just play a clip of that. People ask me, what do you think about Trump? Honestly, I don't care for him much, and I certainly don't trust Hillary. I'm a Marine. For me, country comes first. My duty is always to you. So if Donald Trump is the president, I'll stand up to him, plain and simple. And if Hillary wins... And this is the first example we've seen of a House Republican kind of actively putting anti-Trump messaging on TV. We've seen uh, one other... Uh, Republican do that. It's it's Mark Kirk, the senator from Illinois, who has revoked his endorsement of Trump 
earlier this summer. And interestingly, they they share they share uh, uh, an advisor in uh, Liesl Hickey, who uh, used to be the executive director of the NRCC, the the House Republican Campaign Committee. Um, but you know. We've seen these polls this week that we talked about before, right, where Trump is going from tied or a little behind to a lot behind in some of these swing states. And now, you know, maybe that's just a convention bump. Maybe things will even out a little bit more. But you're seeing where, you know, congressional Republicans who had established maybe a five-point buffer uh, between them and Trump, that's not good enough anymore if he's losing by, say, 10 in Pennsylvania or 15 in New Hampshire. I don't think anyone thinks he's actually behind 15 points in New Hampshire right now, but that's what the latest poll said. And even though Kelly Ayotte, uh, the New Hampshire senator, has this buffer between her and Trump, she's still lost in that poll. And so I think, you know, with respect to McCain, with respect to these other people who are kind of at odds with Trump right now, what Mike Kaufman has has done is potentially an example of what we could see from them in the future if, if these polls don't right themselves. You know, Mike Hoffman, somebody I've covered for a long time out in Colorado. The 6th District in Colorado that he represents used to be Tom Tancredo's district, right? Mike Hoffman used to be far more like Tom Tancredo because it was a safe Republican district. And, and, and when Democrats uh, in 2012 redrew the district completely and moved uh, Aurora into it. Cosmopolitan which, Aurora, according, well, I mean, according blue, to Scott. Blue collar, but, but heavily Hispanic. Mike Hoffman did a 180. Mike Hoffman flipped his immigration position. He started to learn Spanish. And when people said, why the flip-flop? He said, well, duh, you changed my district. And so I'm trying to better represent my new constituents. It was a very honest explanation. Mike Hoffman is a former Marine. Okay, the guy, all he does is win elections. He's never lost an election in Colorado. He is a workhorse. He is crazy. He will do whatever it takes to win. He was the sort of most vulnerable House incumbent last cycle, and he won, uh, as Donald Trump would say, big league. Okay? It wasn't even close. And so, and he's got another tough race this time, and he's running in a presidential year, and he did not do all this work and invest and go to all these you know, supermercados on Saturdays and go to the Asian communities in his district and meet these people where they are and work his ass off to have Donald Trump come along and screw him up. And so he's, you know, he is a unique case, but it makes perfect sense why he would be the first one to sort of be saying, look, this, this, isn't, this isn't the same, you know, these aren't my values. This is not my nominee. I'm here for, for the, these constituents. He has a very unique district. Uh, Mark Kirk has similar, you know, he's not your typical Republican running in a blue, he's running in a blue state, obviously. But what'll be interesting is to, you know, Mike Hoffman has sort of created a template What's interesting is how many people, other Republicans, start to to follow and, and you know run those same plays as this goes on. I think that's very important, the template aspect of this. And and Eli, you know this. You know, Kaufman's campaign team has for a long time like talked very openly about about the shift and the work he's put in 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 uh, in his new district and learning Spanish and all these different things as a model for what other Republicans in uh, you know diverse areas of the country should be doing and what the Republican Party nationally should be doing. And I think, I think, you know, it's not, I think it's mostly about, about him and trying to win his district, but I think there is a signaling effort that they're trying to send to the rest of the party uh, to do this. And, you know, we mentioned uh, one of his advisors, Liesl Hickey, before she wrote this, this memo that, uh, uh, again, that Alex Eisenstadt wrote about um, earlier this week as advice to House Republicans around the country. And there were a couple key points in it. Um, one uh, point that she made was don't buy into the myth 
she says, that Trump voters aren't going to vote for you if you're not for Trump. She says that there's actually very little evidence in the internal polls she's seen that uh, you know, base Republicans would not vote for a down-ballot candidate who wasn't supporting Trump. And the second point she made is do worry about those moderate swing voters, kind of establishment types who might be turned off by Trump. Those are the people that, that they have to worry about. And I think, again, th- this is all part of a larger effort to try and get the down-ballot arms of the Republican Party thinking about this and, and attacking this problem. Well, there's, I, I mean, I think all of that feeds into the like the identity crisis in the Republican Party um, about Donald Trump kind of potentially ruining the Republican Party. I find it. Um, this is something that I read in Politico magazine. Uh, it was shared more than sixty thousand times. Um, and it's the story of President Zachary Taylor uh, from the mid-1800s and how he was pretty much the end of the Whig Party. And if you read it and you take out um, Zachary Taylor, put in Donald Trump, take out Whig, put in Republicans, and then just change, you know, was a successful general to was a businessman, it, it could read the exact same as it, as it is today. And a lot of those themes of, um, you know, he was an outsider who Brown just kind of attached himself to this party, that the party had divisions from the beginning. Beginning, um, it, it really potentially portends a, a huge change to the Republican Party when you see people, especially like Kaufman, um, in these new sort of like, in these new sort of districts that you know would be open to a lot of Republican policies and a lot of the things that Republicans suggest, but they're kind of changing the face of this like new Republicans. What what I think the 2012 autopsy was trying to get the Republicans to turn into. I mean, I don't think we're seeing the end of the Republican Party, but I mean, it definitely feel like it spells a change. Something is going to happen. Yeah, I can't help but think we're, we're nearing some kind of tipping point with the Republican Party, at least as, as it relates to Donald Trump, because um, obviously this week we saw lots of prominent Republicans, whether you're talking about prominent staffers like Sally Bradshaw to George Bush, uh, I'm sorry, to Jeb Bush, or uh, whether you are talking about Meg Whitman, the former Republican gubernatorial uh, nominee in California, uh, or whether you're talking about a member of Congress like Richard Hanna, who is the New York congressman who said he would vote for Hillary Clinton. But what, what I'm watching really closely and, I, and, uh, and is fascinating to me is most of the prominent Republicans who have said they're either going to vote for Hillary or they absolutely cannot vote for Donald Trump don't have a ton of skin in the game. Like Hanna, for example, was the, the first Republican House member who said he would vote for Hillary, he's retiring. There there will be no consequences for him. It's easy for him to speak his heart and say he's not going to vote for Donald Trump. What I did find really interesting and revealing was yesterday, Illinois Representative Adam Kinzinger, uh, who came out and said he cannot vote for Donald Trump. And why I thought he was interesting was he is a member who sits in a district that, uh, that Donald Trump won. So there, he has skin in the game. There are consequences for him, and he is taking some serious political risk. He's a young guy. Uh, he is somebody who's seen as a rising star in the party. So for somebody like that to take the position, that tells you a little something about how the uh, pendulum is swinging. And so I'm curious to see what happens next after that. And I just think, you know, we also saw this week, I mean, there, it's not like these people, yeah, there's sort of no, no skin in the game, but some of these people... We, what we saw in Kansas with Hulescamp losing, there are going to be consequences for some of these people, right? It's not like, I mean, this is a Freedom Caucus guy who just got taken out by the establishment after three terms. And, you know, that's a safe Republican seat. And so if establishment groups are going to start playing in these safe Republican primaries, you know, we make it to a point where 
people will look at somebody who's sort of crazy for Trump. I mean, Desjardins in Kentucky has a tough primary. Tennessee. Tennessee. And, you know, th- uh, I mean, I, I just think that we're at a point now where, yeah, you can draw these conclusions, but there's also, right, like they're picking their spots. And so it's not quite as simple as saying like, oh, these crazy people who are out there like all in for Trump aren't going to at some point potentially, you know, see some payback for that. Two things. First of all, a personal side, Scott Desjardins, primary challenger in Tennessee, classmate of mine in college. Congratulations. We took multiple classes together. I can confirm if anyone in Tennessee is listening, his love of James K. Polk is not something he picked up once he moved to Tennessee. God, he you was, Stanford guys. He was obsessed with him freshman year of college when we had to uh, like review each other's papers in a freshman writing seminar. So Was he the pothead on your floor or anything like that? <laughs> can you give us something of value not, here? Not, not so much. He was uh, the chairman of Students for Romney in 2008. Uh, so... Uh, national chairman. Second thing I would say, the uh, sorry, getting back on topic now, but the the other big thing that happened in Kansas, it wasn't just that Tim Kulescamp lost a whole bunch of hardline uh, conservative state house and state senate members in Kansas lost primaries big uh, in uh, the other day. Huge rebuke to Sam Brownback, the conservative governor, uh, potential for a kind of democratic, moderate Republican takeover of the of control of the state legislature in the next few years. So there's all this stuff percolating. Uh, below, below the surface right now, beyond what we're seeing every day, kind of this the, by Donald Trump's personality um, taking over the the presidential campaign. There's there's all sorts of turmoil going on under the surface, and it's not just in in that kind of more and more and more conservative direction that we've gotten used to watching things move in these primaries for the last few years. And that's where things actually matter is the local level and your state legislators. That's all for us. Say goodbye, Ken. I can't wait till Kristen comes back next week. Ooh, Hadass. <laughs> Bye, guys. Eli? See you, Charlie. Scott? Farewell. Thanks. That's it for this week's podcast. Email us your questions at nerdcast at politico.com, tweet at us, and rate us on iTunes. Thanks, and we'll be back next week when Kristen Roberts returns as our host with the most. <laughs>